This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a Hefty Ultra Strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash, hmm, you can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. According to the FBI's National Crime Information Center, at any given moment, there are as many as 90,000 missing people in the U.S., if this was a premeditated crime, it would have been very clever to make her disappear on the last day of school. If it was in the middle of a semester, you know, kids would have been talking, people would have been aware of the fact that there was a missing girl from school. People say, oh yeah, we know what happened. So, well, have, have they been arrested? No, the police haven't arrested them, but we know exactly what happened. It's almost like he tried to take it one step further and she just wasn't having it this time and she fought back. Police say you were going to bomb the local union hall. You weren't going to do that? Not in the least bit. Why? I'm going to murder a bunch of innocent people? Of course. I don't think my father would be stupid enough to bury a body in the backyard. Hit the red button. Yeah! Yeah! I have to do everything I can do or else all that's left is sadness. Welcome to Status Pending. Thank you all for subscribing and downloading and for the ratings and reviews we've received on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and all over the web. We appreciate your support through our first two chapters, and now we're extremely excited to bring you Chapter 3. This month's case is fascinating and frustrating, and of course, it's unresolved. I'm Heather Wright, I have a criminal justice degree and a master's in behavioral psychology. And I'm Scott Fuller, I've been a journalist of different mediums for the last 15 years. Before we get to Chapter 3, we want to say thank you to our first two Patreon supporters. They are Jessa and Nick from the Getting Off podcast and War Baby from the Murderous Minors Killer Kids podcast. Thank you all three for supporting us on Patreon. Heather, it's awesome that we finally we broke through. We got the, the Patreon support. Yeah, it's really awesome. I honestly didn't think it was going to happen, but... <laughs> I guess that, you know, it's just starting out, so I'm I'm happy to have anyone in our corner, really. It's kind of cool that the first two are our fellow podcast hosts, or the first three hosts of two podcasts. That's kind of cool. They they know all the, the kind of work that goes into a show like this. So big shout out to both of those podcasts. I'm a huge fan of Getting Off, and I'm going to have to check out the Murderous Miners podcast, the Killer Kids podcast. That's going to have to be on my list now as well. But thank you to both of those shows for supporting us. And Heather, how can anyone else out there listening support Status Pending before we go into Chapter 3? Uh, you can become a Patreon of Status Pending at patreon.com slash status pending. That's where you can read all about the Patreon goodies that we have available to everyone who subscribes and the various levels of support that we offer. You can also hear us discuss two true crime documentaries in detail 
as of right now, and they are Mommy Dead and Dearest and The Staircase. Once again, that's patreon.com slash status pending. Thank you in advance for all of your support. We greatly appreciate it, and we hope you enjoy this month's chapter. The man who called himself a serial killer, Thomas Heimer, identified the 17-year-old girl from a photo lineup. He pointed to her picture on the table before him with handcuffed hands. He'd been in prison for the previous five years, since being pulled over in Georgia while driving the car of a woman who'd been strangled in Fort Lauderdale the night before, a crime for which he'd been convicted and sentenced to life in prison. The girl in the photo Heimer was pointing to had been missing from Phoenix, Arizona since just a few months before Heimer was arrested in 2001. Her name was Alyssa Turney, and Heimer had killed her, he told police. After serving a few years of his life term in prison, Heimer became chatty. He'd started writing letters to local investigators, bragging about all the unsolved cases he was responsible for, and all the women and girls that he had killed. The FBI had no reason to doubt Heimer's claims, and when he took credit for the May 2001 disappearance of Alyssa Turney, the FBI contacted investigators with the Phoenix Police Department, which caused them to reopen a case that had gone cold long before. Investigators flew to Florida to interview Heimer, hoping for a lucky break and an easy answer. At the prison in Florida, Thomas Heimer described to Detectives Anderson and Summershoe how he'd met young Alyssa at a hotel room for sex. He then graphically described her murder, her dismemberment, and then the disposal of her body. Detectives asked Heimer what specifically he could remember about Alyssa Turney. He told them she'd been a heroin addict. He told them of some memorable and unusual sexual behavior Alyssa had exhibited in their encounter. The detectives were prepared for this. They already knew Alyssa hadn't been a heroin addict. Not a single friend or family member of Alyssa's had ever described her as using any more than maybe a little marijuana. And a heroin addiction isn't the easiest secret for a 17-year-old to keep. And they had already talked to Alyssa's boyfriend, John, who was her same age, who wasn't able to come close to corroborating the illicit detail in the story Heimer was telling them. He was lying, and they knew it. So they pressed Heimer on details, and he began to fold almost immediately. Well, I killed the girl, he said, but maybe it wasn't the same girl. To put aside any remaining doubts the investigators might have had, they gave Heimer a polygraph examination, which he flunked stupendously. Thomas Heimer hadn't killed Alyssa Turney. But it's as if the question was seriously raised for the first time right then and there. If the serial killer hadn't killed her, who had? Alyssa was three years old when her mother, Barbara Strom, married Michael Turney in 1987. The family has often been referred to as a Brady Bunch. Turney brought three sons to the family, and both parents made an effort to bring all of the strands of their previous lives into the new family. There were no stepdaughters or stepparents in the Turney home. All the children were encouraged to treat Barbara and Michael as though they were biological parents. Later, a youngest daughter, Sarah, would be born to Barbara and Michael. By all accounts, though, everything changed in 1993 when Barbara was diagnosed with cancer. Michael's boys were already grown up and moved out of the house when, sadly, Barbara passed away one year later, leaving Michael Turney to raise two young girls on his own. His super dad persona gone, Turney lost his wife and his union job as an electrician at about the same time. These events were a dark turning point in Michael Turney's life, it seems, and young girls Alyssa and Sarah had nowhere else to go. These events seemed to have contributed to Michael Turney's paranoia. He'd always spoken to the girls about his distrust of the government and large American institutions and organizations. The origin of his beliefs have roots in the Vietnam War. 
Turney would claim that he was among the soldiers in the U.S. government used in its herbicidal warfare programs, testing chemical weapons like Agent Orange. Some 40,000 American military veterans have claimed to have suffered adverse health effects resulting from exposure to Agent Orange, though the government has offered compensation in just 1% of those claims. May 17, 2001 was the last day of the school year for Alyssa and Sarah. It was a hot day for May, even for Phoenix, temperatures topped out at 100 degrees. Around noon, Michael Turney picked up Alyssa from school so the two could have lunch. It's not clear if these were prearranged plans, but the two immediately began arguing. It was a continuation of a common theme in their father-daughter relationship. Alyssa found her stepfather overbearing and wanted more freedom. After lunch, Michael took Alyssa home and watched her storm angrily off into her bedroom. Michael Turney says he left Alyssa there at about 1 p.m. and headed out to run errands. Throughout the afternoon, Turney says he called the home phone several times with no answer. Sarah's class had been spending their last day of school at a water park for a field trip. When the bus returned to school, Sarah was expecting her father to pick her up. When Michael Turney didn't appear, Sarah tried calling him. She didn't reach him, so she decided to walk to a friend's house. It was nearly 5 p.m. by the time Michael Turney picked up Sarah from her friend's house, and the two arrived home. On the way, Michael told Sarah that he'd been trying to call home to Alyssa, and she hadn't been answering. He asked Sarah to keep trying her while they drove. When the two arrived home, Alyssa was gone, but Sarah noticed Alyssa's cell phone in her room still vibrating from Sarah's calls. In Alyssa's room, Sarah found a note. The note was in Alyssa's handwriting and stated she'd saved up enough money to be able to run off to California. Despite the note's claim that Alyssa had planned to leave the state, Michael Turney canvassed the neighborhood, visiting Alyssa's favorite hangout spots and calling her friends. None of Alyssa's friends had seen or heard from her since school that day, so Turney contacted the police and filed a missing persons report. But given Alyssa's age and the note that she left behind, Alyssa was considered a runaway. A week after Alyssa had gone missing, Michael Turney got an early morning phone call at home from a California phone number. Turney said the caller's voice sounded strange, but he was sure it was Alyssa. The call was short and about a minute in length. Is this you, Alyssa? Michael asked. He says the caller essentially told him to leave her alone and stop looking for her. Sarah says she was expecting Alyssa to return home within a few weeks, but when those weeks went by, followed by months and years, the younger Sarah began to come to terms with the possibility and eventually the probability that she may never see her sister again. That's where the disappearance of Alyssa Turney remained for five years, until a self-professed serial killer reopened the case. Alyssa's stepfather, Michael Turney, who had been a Maricopa County Sheriff's deputy from 1970 to 1974, had always professed to police his assumption that Alyssa had simply run off to California. He'd been a single dad since the death of his wife from cancer, and Alyssa's friends could vouch for her free spirit and precociousness. After all, it would be far from the first time a teenage girl had a fight with her father and left home in protest, if only for a few hours. Then there was that phone call Michael Turney had received very early one morning about a week after he'd last seen Alyssa, a call corroborated by phone records. It seems this assumption was good enough for police in 2001. It seemed a good enough explanation for most people, the case received little, if any, local media attention at the time, and Alyssa was chalked up as a runaway. But there had always been a few pretty glaring problems with this assumption. For one thing, Alyssa left behind her cell phone. And while cell phones weren't as much an extension of the daily existence of a teenager in 2001 as they are today, wouldn't Alyssa have wanted to have the phone with her? 
Also left at the home were Alyssa's hairbrush and makeup, and perhaps most suspicious, the $1,800 in her account at a bank only a few blocks from where she lived. Money Alyssa certainly would have wanted access to, regardless of why she'd left or how long she'd planned to be gone. So police pressed the issue just a little. They spoke with Alyssa's friends, her boyfriend, other members of her family, and ever so slowly a new picture began to emerge. The picture was an image that had been there all along, but somehow it hadn't been evident to police or anyone else until later when police began to scratch just beneath the surface of good enough is good enough and press for answers to their nagging questions about Alyssa's stepfather, Michael Turney. Some of those questions were about the video surveillance system Turney had installed at the home. Less curious were the outdoor cameras, a standard enough home precaution measure even 17 years ago. What piqued the interest of police, though, were the surveillance cameras placed inside the home, like the one mounted in a concealed position inside an air vent pointed directly at the living room sofa. Nothing happened inside Michael Turney's home on North 34th Street without him knowing about it. He was effectively spying on his own children. Upon learning of the existence of these cameras inside the home, police asked Turney for the footage, and he provided some right away. The tapes showed Alyssa entertaining boys her age, and even young men, including her boyfriend John. The videos were innocent enough, teenagers kissing on the couch while they thought no one was watching, but police didn't fail to notice that these videos were the very first Michael Turney provided. As if to say, here are your suspects, officers. Turney began to advance his own theories as to what might have happened to his stepdaughter. He told police about his growing suspicion that his old union connections had made Alyssa disappear in retribution for Turney's past dealings with him. Turney had lost his union job right around the same time of the death of his wife in 1994, but he was never able to present a union connection to Alyssa's disappearance that made any sense to detectives. Michael Turney had installed a passive phone tap on the home's phone line years before. Passive wire tapping monitors or records all incoming and outgoing phone calls made to or from the home. Turney's system was set up to automatically record every word said on the home's landline, and this surveillance, at least, the girls were aware of. They may not have known they were being videotaped inside their own house, but both girls grew up knowing that every phone conversation they had could be eavesdropped on by their father later. So police asked Michael Turney for the video and telephone surveillance from the day Alyssa was last at home. Turney helpfully offered to do the officer's jobs for them. He reviewed eight hours of video surveillance from that day, but told police none of that footage from back in 2001 contained anything interesting. Unsurprisingly, Turney's review of the tapes didn't satisfy the detectives. Police have a very different definition of nothing than most of us do. In this case, the video may not contain footage of anything overtly criminal, but it might show them what Alyssa had been wearing that day or how her hair was styled. It would show her leaving the home that afternoon in which direction she left and at what time. Police wanted that tape. They insisted they be able to review the footage for themselves, but Michael Turney never did turn over those videotapes to the police. As for that early morning phone call Turney claimed was from Alyssa, the one he claimed Alyssa made from a payphone in California, asking him to stop looking for her and never try to track her down? We know when that call was made and where it was made from, but there's no way to know for sure who made it. And coincidentally, Michael Turney's passive phone tap wasn't functioning properly on that day. So, so far as we know, the audio of that call was never recorded. 
For all the different parenting styles that are discussed, it would be difficult to categorize Michael Turney's, or for that matter, even begin to explain how his treatment of Alyssa could have been good for her in any way. He would constantly search Alyssa's belongings and watch her from the parking lot while she was working at her job at a local fast food restaurant. But Turney told ABC News that while his parenting style might have been a little on the overcautious side, he always had the best interest of Alyssa in mind. Well, let's clear some of the things that they're saying about you. No, at, at the beginning, the detectives were very focused on Heimer. They thought maybe he had done it. But as they began to interview her friends, oh, no. some disturbing things start to surface. Oh, and they say that among them was the, the feeling that you were obsessed with her. You've heard this before. It's on the affidavit, yes. That you were very controlling yes. that, and very strict, uh, that you had her sign contracts, you <laughs> followed her around, you interviewed parents of any new friends of hers. Do you feel that went war far beyond what a normal parent would do? Oh, it depends on who you talk to. Mm -hmm. If it would avoid anything happening to my daughter, yes, I don't think it was far beyond. At the time, I look back at it because she ran away as a result of that. Yeah, of course I feel bad about it. Other people said you were demeaning to Alyssa, that you made her feel stupid. That's an absolute lie. I wouldn't allow that with Alyssa because I want Alyssa to have good uh, self-esteem of herself. But her friends said that you were demeaning to her. You called her stupid. In a phone call that has surfaced since then, you called Alyssa a bitch. Really? See, I'm not aware of that. It's on a recording. Well, then fine. Let's bring all the recordings out. I got no problem with that. Did you? Did you call her that? Did I call Alyssa a bitch? I don't remember. I very well could have one time when I was mad at her. Who knows? That's demeaning. I guess it is. For whatever else he is or is not, one of the first things we've come to learn about Michael Turney is that he's a liar. Or at least that he has no problem lying. In that interview with ABC's 2020, Turney is caught in several lies on camera during the interview. Then, as you heard, he claimed to have never belittled Alyssa, or to have made Sarah or Alyssa feel stupid in any way. This claim is directly refuted by, of all things, a home movie that we're about to play the audio from for you. But as you'll hear, Michael Turney's belittling words directed at his stepdaughter Alyssa are not the most disturbing thing on this film. The home video was filmed by the Turneys on a camping trip in 1997, four years before Alyssa went missing, when she was just 13 years old. In the footage, Michael Turney and Alyssa are walking down a dirt road while on a camping trip. Alyssa's younger sister, Sarah, is videotaping. Hit the red button. Why? Hit the red button now. I don't want to. How do I record? Hit the red button. Sarah! Yeah. On the from further down the road, Alyssa yells back to Sarah, saying that, quote, Dad's a pervert. Dad's a pervert. Michael Turney responds by awkwardly, almost passive-aggressively, tossing two objects in Alyssa's general direction down the road. Give me the camera now. He then takes the camera and focuses in on Alyssa, while calling her a, quote, stupid moron. Not once, but twice. Alyssa responds with a homosexual slur in reference to her stepfather. Hit the red button. Why? Hit the red button now. I don't want to. How do I record? Hit the red button. Yeah. On the cookie. Yeah. Yeah. Dad's a pervert. Give me the camera now. 
<laughs> and you're still recording. And Lissa is stupid moron. And Lissa's a stupid moron. From here on, this case deals with allegations of abuse that some listeners might find disturbing. It was after Alyssa disappeared that the allegations of sexual abuse began to surface. It wasn't so much a matter of something happening all that often, on a regular basis, or even more than just a few times, but police were struck by how consistently they heard the story. Alyssa's close friends knew about it. Her boyfriend John even knew about the time that Michael Turney picked up Alyssa from school early. They drove around for a while, before pulling into a remote location. Pretty soon, he started fooling around with her, the story went. Things escalated from there, and it got physical. Specifics varied from friend to friend, but just about every one of Alyssa's close friends knew about the incident, even if they hadn't told anyone else until after their friend disappeared. Those persistent allegations were reinforced to police by Michael Turney's demands for control over Alyssa. Turney forced Alyssa to sign a so-called behavior contract stating, among other things, that Michael had never sexually abused Alyssa. He never asked Sarah to sign such a contract. In fact, Sarah says she and Alyssa were treated entirely differently by her father. You'll hear more from Alyssa's younger sister Sarah in episode 2 of this chapter. On December 11, 2008, Sarah got a call from detectives. They wanted her to come down to the station right away. That's when Sarah Turney learned about the allegations of sexual misconduct against her father. For every one of her close friends she told about what she said Michael Turney did to her, Alyssa never confided in her sister. And if that weren't enough of a shocker for Sarah, police then told her that her house was being raided. Right then at that moment, because they suspected Michael Turney killed Alyssa and disposed of her body. It's unclear if police were prepared for what they found inside the home. While Sarah was talking with detectives at the station, the Phoenix Police Department executed a search warrant at Michael Turney's residence located on North 34th Street in Phoenix. Police found 26 pipe bombs and three incendiary devices. In addition, the police found two silencers according to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Arizona which said the destructive devices and silencers were not registered in the National Firearms Registration and Transfer Record as required by federal law. A 98-page manifesto entitled Diary of a Madman Martyr was found along with a document stating that the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers was behind Alyssa's disappearance. The next regular meeting at the Union Hall was scheduled for just days after the police raid on Turney's home. Authorities believe strongly that Michael Turney had planned to stage some sort of attack on the meeting and their happenstance raid on the Turney home seeking evidence connected to the disappearance of Alyssa Turney saved many lives. Turney claimed his writings were fictitious and that he was neither physically nor mentally capable of executing a sophisticated plan of attack against the Union Hall. During his court process, Turney had been diagnosed with a paranoid personality disorder. Michael Turney pleaded guilty to unlawful possession of unregistered destructive devices, which is a felony offense, in federal district court in Phoenix. As a part of the plea, Michael Turney admitted that he'd illegally possessed 26 pipe bombs discovered by police during the search. In September 2010, Michael Turney was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison for the bomb plot and illegal weapons possession charges. Two of Turney's children, Sarah and John, testified during his sentencing they'd had no problems living with him 
and that he had never been violent. He was released last summer, in 2017, and remains out of prison, still with two years supervised probation remaining on his sentence. Phoenix Police Detectives Anderson and Summershoe were also present at the sentencing. He tried to get Michael Turney to talk about Alyssa's disappearance, but all they got from him was agitation and hostility. Turney said he had already said all he was going to say about Alyssa, and that he, Michael Turney, was the only one still looking for his missing stepdaughter. Sarah Turney's view of her father has changed quite dramatically in the years since he was sentenced. Once her father's defender, while he was in prison, even at one point creating a website to advocate for his release, Sarah now suspects her dad knows precisely what happened to Alyssa. And after his release in 2017, last October, she tried to get him to admit it to her. Sarah met with her father for the first time since his release from prison and confronted him with her thoughts and suspicions. She also secretly recorded that conversation. Be there at the deathbed, Sarah, and I'll give you all the honest answers you want to hear. Why don't you give them to me now? Because you got them now. Then why are you making me this offer to go to your deathbed? <laughs> I don't know, Sarah. What are you looking for? 